Welcome back to another episode of the Clean Techies podcast, where we interview climate tech founders and VCs to discuss all things building and investing to solve the biggest challenge of our generation, climate change. Today, we have a really exciting conversation, and I know I say that almost every time, but today is a bit different. Why, you might ask? Well, I believe we had the chance to speak with someone who has invented a technology that will be considered as one of the greatest innovations in building materials in this century, perhaps even this millennia. I know it sounds a little bit exaggeratory, but I'm very, very excited. Today, we spoke with Cody Finke, the co-founder and CEO of Brimstone. They have invented a third method of creating Portland cement. And for those unaware, Portland cement is the cement engineers will specify when engineering buildings. They will rarely veer from this given the potential risks of using other unproven concretes and cements. This cement accounts for about 5% of global emissions and Brimstone has developed a carbon neutral and in some cases carbon negative method of creating cement that they believe at scale will be at cost parity with current conventional cement prices. This conversation covers everything from his journey into climate, how he started the company, experience fundraising and some of the insights around that area, as well as advice to founders on hiring and developing deep tech. Really an incredible episode. I'm very glad to have had the opportunity to speak with Cody and nerd out about concrete at least a little bit. Hopefully this episode will cement your excitement for concrete. Enjoy the episode. All right. Welcome to the show, Cody. How's it going? Yeah, thanks, Silas. Um, it's going quite well. How are you doing? I am fine as frog hair. I'm, I'm excited to have you on. Really <laughs> Uh, ready to nerd out about uh, about concrete and cement a little bit. Would love, lo- really excited to have you on. To be honest with you, so um, yeah. we actually just we had a kind of an internal debate um, with some of my colleagues this week about uh, how you know concrete and cement are super exciting to us. Well, some of the other people were like, Nah, I don't know. I don't know how you get excited about that. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, most people are in the I don't know how to get excited about that camp, but I'm with you. It's yeah, I'm excited part to think about. I think it's super fascinating. So let, let's start off just by giving a quick intro to yourself and who you are and kind of uh, you can tie into that, how you ended up uh, getting into climate. Yeah. So yeah, my name is Cody Finke. I'm the co-founder of a company called Brimstone. And as we've alluded to here, Brimstone is working on uh, eliminating greenhouse gas emissions from the production of cement. And sure we'll get into this but cement of course is responsible for about five and a half percent of global greenhouse gas emissions that's pretty similar to cars right cars are something like six and a half percent um so uh it might be hard to get excited about cement and concrete but if you can get excited about the quantity of co2 emissions that cars um or eliminating those emissions from cars you could probably get excited about eliminating the co2 emissions from cement um yeah and then uh sorry you, you wanted to background yeah, got, background climate yeah i'm curious about your background and kind of how you ended up specifically getting into into climate and may, maybe in particular you know were you always a, a fan of trying to solve the concrete issue or did that kind of uh, come by accident yeah i certainly wasn't a fan of that but i'll get to that yeah so um i guess uh my professional background is um i'm a chemist by training right? that's what i did my undergraduate work in and then i went and got a phd in environmental science and engineering where I worked on primarily electrochemistry um, and I, you know, to get to your point, I uh, was not always excited about cement and concrete. Uh, I started out uh, working on wastewater treatment for applications in low-income countries. And then I moved on to um, water electrolysis to make clean hydrogen. And then I moved on to 
uh, working on the fertilizer problem. Um, so it's specifically greenhouse gas emissions associated with producing fertilizer. Um, and then ultimately move to cement. Um, but I think like my, my uh, sort of interest in working on climate and environmental issues started a long time before that. I think the, the first time I started trying to solve something is, um, so I grew up in Seattle right? and um, just like as a, I was always, I've always been just thought outdoors and mountain climbing and all that kind of stuff was super cool. I would look up at Mount Rainier and that was, you know, the coolest thing ever. Um, and I learned uh, from uh, going to an inconvenient truth uh, with like Al Gore's movie, which was, you know, back when I was a freshman or sophomore in high school um, that, uh, you know, those glaciers on Mount Rainier, which I thought was so cool were threatened. I was like, that's just, that's devastating. Um, now <laughs> I've realized that there are more, maybe more important impacts than the glaciers on Mount Rainier, although that, that is still devastating. Um, but uh, yeah, after that, I um, like started uh, like environmental club in my high school, and uh, I started a, a compost program. Um, I would uh, personally uh, rebag and take out compost compost bins in my high school um, for uh, three years in high school every day, or was it every day? Maybe it was every other day. I think it was every other day, um, and. Uh, yeah, that was uh, sometimes a little convenient because if I was hungry and there was some perfectly good food in there, I was I would I would <laughs> do a little dumpster diving. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, what wasn't really um, wasn't really uh, specifically focused on any one area. I just was concerned about climate in general. Um, and as I went through school and and into graduate school, I became really interested in sort of these orphaned problems, right? Like these huge environmental problems that folks aren't really working on. Um, so the first one of course was wastewater treatment. Um, and then uh, got very interested in, of course, that, that fertilizer problem and then eventually cement. And what, you know, a statistic that I know now that like kind of distills it, right? Is that um, if you look at dollars invested in decarbonization per ton of greenhouse gas emissions, right? If you look at transportation, it's like 14 or $15 invested. And if you look at cement, it's like one penny, right? So it's, um, it is a problem that is huge and it's a problem that is rarely worked on. Um, and that's kind of exactly where, where I wanna be, what, what, one of the things that interests me the most. Hey there, quick break to remind any founders or VCs listening, if you are looking for deal flow, seeking to raise funding, looking for partners to help service your needs, or perhaps you're looking for corporate investment partners, feel free to reach out to us through our Slack channel, which can be found in the description. Because we meet a lot of people in this space, we set aside time each week to make introductions to the various people that we encounter. This is something we do free of charge in order to help these incredible companies solving climate change to scale. Looking forward to hearing from you in the Slack channel. So that's, by the way, very fascinating and kind of sad to hear. But how did you, did you particularly choose uh, chemistry as a, as a focus for study because you wanted to solve climate solutions? Or did you just like, hey, I'm, I'm interested in this. And then you found your way into it. I'm, I'm kind of curious about the decision-making process since kind of climate was a, was an important thing to you all the way back in high school. Yeah. So I also, I've been really psyched on science ever since, you know, starting, I mean, far back I can remember. Um, it, it just, it made a lot more sense to me than, um, than 
uh, I guess like humanities or, or, or something like that. Um, it just sort of matched the way that my, my brain, my brain thinks. Um, and I kind of, I, I was, you know, sort of broadly interested. I took a lot of, you know, um, biology, physics, and chemistry related courses, um, all throughout, you know, high school and college. And I kind of found as I got, um, like more advanced in the coursework, uh, that my interest really focused on chemistry and a, a friend of mine, um, kind of Ian McKay, um, you know, put it in a, I think a really, a, a way that really resonates with me, right? Like for different people, um, there's going to be, you know, we can work, we can work on things and learn things and we can, you know, work to a level where we can understand things. And if you pull it back a little bit from like the limit of our understanding is like a zone where you can be creative. And I felt like, um, with chemistry for me, I felt like in all my advanced coursework, like I was really in a zone where I could be creative when I was studying chemistry. Whereas I felt like, um, you know, so the, like, so the other sciences, like either biology or physics, I was like either, I was pushing up on my limit to, of understanding. Um, so just, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly what the deal is, but how my brain worked is like, you know, chemistry just clicked with me in a, a different way. But, um, I really saw, and I still see that there were tools in, you know, really any discipline that you can use to work on a lot of really important problems, right? When I was first studying chemistry and a lot of other stuff, a lot of biology and physics too, um, I was also interested in, you know, HIV vaccines. I won a scholarship to for a research program on a developing like an HIV vaccine. Um, but you know, and I don't who knows if it would have worked. I didn't <clears throat> end up doing anything on it. Um, but you know, a lot of these, um, there, there's a lot of really interesting, important problems out there. And I was, you know, I think I could have been happy working on a lot of different ones. Yeah, climate. Um. I didn't specifically go into chemistry because of climate. I went into chemistry because it um, felt the most exciting to me. Um, and I applied that to climate problems. I think you can apply anything to you know, climate problems, really. Hey there. Are you building a climate tech business and looking for very specialized talent? Consider reaching out to our sponsors, NextWave Partners. NextWave are experts in talent acquisition, recruitment, and retention across the climate tech, renewables, and ESG spaces globally. So if your team is growing or you're looking to make a career change yourself, feel free to reach out to NextWave at next-wavepartners.com or reach out to one of their consultants directly via their LinkedIn page. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as it so happens, you picked a, you picked a, an area to study that's extremely important, right? Chemistry is like a really huge, um, there's so many, so many solutions that can come out of it. So it's really fascinating. Um, I'm kind of curious, how did you, when did you decide that you wanted to be an entrepreneur and build things? Did, did it just come to you that you're like, Hey, like there's no other companies I can work for in this space that are doing this, that I have to do it myself. Or was it something you always wanted to do? Yeah. It, you know, I, I did not grow up wanting to be an entrepreneur and I, it was pretty recent before I started the company. I, I, so when I was, um, I was working on this wastewater treatment system for applications in low-income countries in the early days of grad school. Uh, and that was funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And the Gates Foundation, um, they, they did a lot of coaching of, of us as graduate students. And, and one of the things that they would talk about, and I'm paraphrasing here, is that there's, you know, in, in the global economic system we have, which is basically capitalism, there's sort of two ways to go about um, to go about changing things. So the first is 
you would go try to change the global economic system, right? And you could do that in relatively minor ways by like trying to figure out taxes or policies that work within the constraints of the system we have, or you could try to overhaul it completely. Or you could try to uh, start a company and have that company produce a product where uh, the value over cost ratio is higher than what existed before. Um, and you can change things that way. And I think both are great ways to work on, to change things. Like if you, I think everyone needs to look at, you know, the skills and abilities that they have. And, and I don't have, um, you know, any political inclination or understanding of, you know, um, politics. So like going the political route seemed complicated. Um, so I ultimately said, okay, well, starting a, or, or, or going through companies seems like a, um, way that matched my skills, which is like, a, you know, chemist, I can think about, think about just building processes or things that could, you know, do chemistry. Um, but I would say that the, um, the actually starting the business took a little bit longer. So I became comfortable with the idea that like businesses were the way that things changed. If you maybe were a scientist that built things, but I, um, you know, thought like, oh, well, maybe I could be a researcher and like put a bunch of things out there. But one of the things that I realized is that um, no one, no one cares as much about uh, the thing that you invented, <laughs> um, <laughs> right? Except for the person who invented it. And, mm -hmm. and, and more importantly, like what you invent is almost certainly not actually that good, right? You, it needs to be changed quite a bit. So um, going yourself, I, I think that going yourself through the scale up process and engineering process is really important to, you know, making sure that or having the best chance of making an impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Now, I think that 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 is uh, interesting to hear. You had to come to the realization that it was it was time to, to go take the reins and go for it. One, one thing I'm kind of curious is so far, what would you say has been your biggest difficulty as a founder from a skills perspective? and how you've solved it like how have you kind of closed the gap on that yeah so to be honest with you like um i'm really interested in solving big global problems like um climate and uh you know for, yeah, for example or sorry working on so cement i i'm um the steps in order that are necessary to do that sometimes seem a little bit confusing right um so for example like one of the things you have to do is you have to get money from investors and getting money from investors in um, involves trying to convince uh, groups that already have quite a bit of money that um, they're going to make a lot more money. And this like this sort of intermediate step just never felt like a very exciting problem for me. I, like I, I don't really care about trying to figure out how to maximize the money of an organization that already has a lot of money. Right. And I gave him about climate. So, you, you know, I, I understand that it's necessary, you know, if you're going to do, you know, in the system that we have, if you're going to use private business to solve big problems and it, then, 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 you know, we, we all need access to capital and to get access to capital, you need to, you know, um, figure out ways for the folks that have capital to make a lot of money so that they give you their capital. Um, but it's just like, that was often a fairly boring aspect of the uh, the job for me because just like I just didn't really feel like I was solving a problem, but I had to like get into a new mindset of like, well, 
this is not necessarily a problem, but it is a necessary step on, you know, trying to solve the problem that's really of interest. So, um, yeah, that, and that's, and that took a lot of, that took a lot of growth. Um, you know, it kind of started in graduate school where I was like, you know, initially trying to be like, okay, well, this technology works. Like, can't we just start a business around it? And like, people will pay a bit more and it'll be fine. And I realized, well, actually, no, like, in, in fact, people need to pay a lot, need to pay a lot less because not only does the process need to be, um, need to make folks money that that the amount of money that folks need to make needs to be adjusted for the risk of a new process. Uh, so it's, it, it's, it's definitely been a lot of, of growth being able to think about these problems. And I've gotten to the point where, you know, I, I, I almost enjoy it as much as like a, a step in um, a step in anything else. Yeah, I think it's super important. It, it is uh, sometimes I've seen with recruitment, some the some of the technical uh, engineers and folks that I work with, they they just don't have the patience for the commercial, not because they can't do it, but because like this seems stupid, right? <laughs> like yeah. I'd rather work yeah. on something else more more interesting, right? Um, so it's interesting that you have to have, you kind of had to learn that and, and get up to speed on that. So let, let's kind of shift a little bit to talk. Uh, let's talk a little bit of specifics about what you're doing with Brimstone. Um, with, with in mind that, you know, most of us are not chemists. So give us an explanation that we could, that we could kind of go to our, uh, go to our grandma and explain later tonight. Hey there, are you building a climate tech business and looking for very specialized talent? Consider reaching out to our sponsors, Next Wave Partners. NextWave are experts in talent acquisition, recruitment, and retention across the climate tech, renewables, and ESG spaces globally. So if your team is growing or you're looking to make a career change yourself, feel free to reach out to NextWave at next-wavepartners.com or reach out to one of their consultants directly via their LinkedIn page. Totally, yeah. I, I have explained uh, this to my grandma. She's quite a sharp woman, um, but she is not a chemist. Uh, <laughs> so I'll, I'll try my best to replicate that. Um, so... Uh, I'll, I'll start with how cement is conventionally produced, right? So, so far in history, um, cement has been made via two processes. Okay. So um, the first process, which is, you know, today, the dominant process, by far the dominant process, um, it's called the dry process. And you start with a rock called limestone. And um, you need to get you need to get the calcium out of that limestone because cement is ultimately made out of calcium. And in limestone, that calcium is bonded to CO2, carbon dioxide. Um, so you have to heat up that limestone that drives off the CO2 from the limestone. And then you can manipulate the calcium and turn it into ordinary Portland cement, which is, you know, what cement is. You know, that's, that, that's the cement we use. It's called ordinary Portland cement. Okay. So that's the first process. That's, you know, the one that's responsible for five and a half percent of the world's uh, greenhouse gas emissions. The second process that, that we don't really do too much anymore is you make ordinary Portland cement from gypsum, right? Um, that's a rock that uh, also has calcium in it, but that calcium instead is bonded to sulfate. Um, so in order to get that calcium, you have to burn off the sulfate, which makes either um, smog forming sulfur dioxide or sulfuric acid. Uh, and we used to use that process when we didn't have a better way to make sulfuric acid. Now we have a better way to make sulfuric acid. So we don't use that process anymore um, because sulfuric acid is not a very nice thing to use to leave as a waste product. Um, so anyway, those are the sort of the two ways that cement has been made in the past. Um, what we at Brimstone we did is we just, in, we have invented a third way to make ordinary Portland cement. So we use a 
different rock, neither gypsum nor limestone. Um, we use what's called a calcium silicate rock. And instead of, it has calcium in it, just like gypsum and limestone, but instead of being bonded to either carbon dioxide or sulfuric acid, our rock, the calcium is bonded to silicates. And it turns out that silicates are another ingredient in cement. <laughs> so it's a pretty convenient thing for it to be bonded to. Uh, so we do a chemical process, we separate out the calcium, we concentrate it, we recombine it with some of the silicate, and then our process produces ordinary Portland cement. And it does not form any, you know, global warming or acid forming gases because there's none of those in the rock to start with. Um, what it does form instead is actually a magnesium compound. Um, it's typically magnesium hydroxides are, you know, not important, uh, I guess, if you're not a chemist. But those magnesium compounds um, will passively sequester CO2. So just sitting in air, they'll react with CO2 in the air to form magnesium carbonates. Um, and magnesium carbonates are permanently stored CO2. And what that means is our process, our process is actually carbon negative, right? It, 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 instead of emitting CO2 from the rock, the rock sucks CO2 in. Um, so for a wide range of energy sources that makes our process, um, you know, net carbon negative, um, which is, which is awesome because we don't, we don't necessarily have to wait for clean energy to be available everywhere in the world before we can scale and still be carbon negative. Um, so we can, that's, that's allows us to be fast, which is really great. Uh, and then also, you know, recently, a couple of weeks ago now, um, we announced some news where we had a third party actually certify our cement as ordinary Portland cement. So now we officially are, you know, we officially have invented the third process to make ordinary Portland cement. Um, it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's probably a huge point. So I, we, we can skip ahead to this. I wanted to talk about that at some point. So it, are you referring to the uh, C-150 certification? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So I want to just ask kind of from, I would be curious to understand, I, I don't think it's going to be necessarily extremely helpful unless there's other people trying to do this exact thing, but from a regulatory perspective, like what were the you know general kind of key things that you had to go through and what was that process like to get to that point? Um, I would be really curious to hear your experience. Yeah, so I, I'd love to share. And let me just start with a little bit of the the theory and background about why we're doing it this way. So um, we, when we started, we tried to, we always try to use frameworks. And we try to develop a, um, like what we thought needed to be true in order to decarbonize cement quickly. Um, like when we say quickly, we mean just like on, on a time scale that's relevant for avoiding the worst effects of climate change. And there's some great pathways laid out by the IPCC. Um, and we looked at, you know, you could basically take one of two strategies. You could either try to make something that's better than ordinary Portland cement, um, or you could try to make ordinary Portland cement. And, you know, people have been trying to make something that's better than ordinary Portland cement for a long time. And there's, um, there have been regulatory standards, um, that allow for the use of these alternative cements many of which are, are lower zero carbon. Um, and, it, 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 and those regulatory standards have existed for something like 30 years, right? ASTM C1157 is an example. Before. But still, basically nobody uses that type of cement. And we thought that was curious, right? So we talked to structural engineers and 
what we learned was, uh, you know, if you're a structural engineer and you're specifying the cement in a building, you really don't want that building to fall down. And if it falls down, um, a lot of people could be injured or die. A lot of, uh, you'll lose a lot of money, right? It'd be a really, really bad thing. Um, so it's something you really, really want to avoid. Uh, and, and you have, so they're okay. That's what you want to avoid. You have a choice, right? Then you could either use the exact same cement that's always been used to build buildings. That's ordinary Portland cement, or you could use a new material, which maybe is lower carbon or higher strength or something like that. And the reality is, is there are unknown unknowns and we don't know exactly how that new material would perform. So <laughs> structural engineers do not want to specify a new material, regardless of the standard. So we said, okay, um, we don't want to make a new material. We want to make the exact same material. Um, so we said, okay, we, 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 we believe in order to decarbonize cement quickly, you need to make ordinary Portland cement. Um, so then we looked around and we said, where's all the calcium in the world? Because that's what you need to make ordinary Portland cement. And it was in three places, limestone, gypsum, and, and silicate rocks. Folks had made cement out of limestone and gypsum before. They'd never made cement out of silicate rocks. So that's what we did. Um, and, you know, what the, what the certification process involved really was like reinventing the entire process, right? We had to, we had to start with a new starting material nearly all the unit operations are different. Um, so it was a lot of, um, a lot of modeling, a lot of theory, a ton of lab work. Um, you know, the, the scientists and engineers that work for Brimstone spent a ton of hours, um, sort of getting the process that worked on paper to work in the lab. Um, and then we had to produce enough to, um, for the test and the test, mind you, right. Uh, is, geared for giant cement plants. I mean, uh, so it's a test that's, you know, done routinely, you know, every time a batch is made in a cement plant, they'll do this test to make sure that the cement is up to specification. Um, but because it's geared for giant cement plants, it requires sort of a lot of material, right? So we had to spend uh, a long time at a pretty early stage of the company gathering that material to send off for, um, for testing or, you know, producing it in lab scale equipment to be confident that we actually, you know, did make what we were intending to make. And the good news is the answer is yes, we can make it, which is pretty, pretty exciting. And what, it, it, what we feel it means is like, it's a, we've now shown that there is a credible pathway to decarbonize the, you know, all of cement production, not just a fraction of cement production that might be replaced with a different material. It's really all of cement production that we could now decarbonize, which is pretty cool. I mean, that's amazing, right? That's uh, you've removed all the barriers to entry, right? So just out of curiosity, like I, I, I want to get the the very honest answer. Are there any other companies who have actually come up with this process yet? Or is this totally like completely new? This is completely new. Yeah. So, uh, it, you know, it's, and it's a good, <laughs> whenever we think that we like to do a little sanity check and figure out, well, you know, why would that be? Right? <laughs> uh, and, you know, the real answer is because it's, it's it gets, um, it gets into a pretty interesting part of the cement world. Um, so to make cement, what you actually have to do is you need to mix the ordinary Portland cement that comes out of a cement plant with something called supplementary cementitious materials. And supplementary cementitious materials today are the waste product from burning coal. So typically it's 
fly ash, which is burning coal in a coal-fired power plant, right? Place make coal-fired electricity. But you can also get it from primary steel production and that sort of thing. Um, and that's how we make cement that has the wonderful properties that you can build skyscrapers out of. But <laughs> um, the production of fly ash and you know, or or these supplementary cementitious materials has slowed um, over the last several decades as we as we've thankfully transitioned away from coal. And what that means is, um, the uh, cement industry has run into problems sourcing this material and cement is one of the reasons why cement has gotten more expensive. Well, it turns out that that silicate rock um, that we make cement out of, what's left behind and um, passes the other ASTM standard for cement, which is C618, which specifies supplementary cementitious materials, which means that our process is actually a source for both ordinary Portland cement and supplementary cementitious materials. And if supplementary cementitious materials were abundant, then our process would probably be too expensive. But because they're not abundant, right, because of this transition away from coal, our process, we believe, would be lower cost at scale. Um, and uh, we think that folks, other folks had not invented this because they, you know, had grown up in a world where supplementary cementitious materials were abundant enough. Mm -hmm. And therefore, there wasn't a lot of motivation to um to work on this and we kind of had the right idea at the right time um yeah and it's just very fascinating because if it is the it, it's very hard for people like as a recruiter sometimes i work with companies where I, i'm forced to say like i'm pretty sure this is the only technology in the world and you always hate saying that because you're like what if i'm wrong like what if what if somebody else does actually have this but uh it's it is true right a lot of things have been invented have been the first technology right um i'm sure of course there'll be many copycats to follow in 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 the quick succession but um, it is really cool, right? So, congrats on that. That's obviously really, really huge. Yeah, I am curious. Uh, I'm, there's a lot of things I'd like to ask, but I think perhaps the the next question would be: What is the business model that you guys have settled on? How do you have you have? What are you focused on? On how to make money? Um, you know, what steps are next to really get to that process? Yeah, it's a, another great question because um, making money is important, and it's you know we're we're not going to scale. What I've learned, right, is we're not going to scale quickly unless we make money and, you know, really unless we make our product for the same value, right? We still make the same cement, but for a lower price point. Um, so what that, you know, we've done a lot of research and the conventional cement companies that make all the cement today, um, in general, they are, um, you know, appropriately risk averse. Like their business works really, really well um, and they don't want to... Um, they don't want to put a lot of money into an R and D program with unclear results. Um, so we think that the best way to, um, you know, interact with all the big cement companies will be to scale our process um, completely uh, as in build a completely full scale plant. Um, and that'll take, you know, it'll take a few scale up We're you know, working on a pilot plant right now. And then we're going to build a first commercial plant, which will be subscale. And then we'll later build a full scale plant. And once we build a full scale plant, like the risk factor will sort of go away and we'll have lots of options, right? We could, you know, license technologies to existing producers, you know, where it's appropriate. And I hope that, you know, that will happen a lot. Um, 
we could join venture that's commonly done or you know where there's you know no interested party we could build build out and operate ourselves um, and you know we're kind of going to decide based on what's the most attractive um, business case at the time but we're really clear that you have to build um, a full-scale plant in order to mm -hmm. get there so so essentially just to like reiterate that what you're going to do is through you know the funding you've raised or, or next rounds etc will build and demonstrate that this is possible on a commercial scale the same way it already is being used and that from that point you've basically de-risked um, other companies saying okay here's the instruction manual for us to go build one of those plants ourselves and then we'll just pay you a licensing fee is that correct that's exactly right yeah okay interesting and <clears throat> what is it like um trying to to build those kind of the pilot plants do you have to find a partner to work with are you funding it off of the off of the balance do you have find a partner who wants to who's like really interested or a corporate who wants to to try um to see if they can get this to work too i'm really curious because there's been many models that people have followed for the pilot projects yeah so for us um we're finding that our pace and interest are driving this fastest on our own um so we're building we we raised enough uh, venture capital funds to build the pilot plant um, on our own balance sheet and that's really important because you know because we are the first to invent this process and we have um a lot of uh very valuable uh, intellectual property associated with that by building it ourselves uh, that ensures us um, our ability to maintain ownership of our intellectual property which is the biggest value creator um, at brimstone uh so that's a yeah, that's a really important strategy given where our value is. That's really interesting. I I, I guess I never considered that <laughs> somebody else might try to lay claim, right? Yeah. Um, okay, interesting. And then so with the fact that you've gotten this this announcement recently, you know, what is it like? Can you walk us through the funding process for the startup? Right? How did you? How did it start? Where'd you get the money from? And then what were the big milestones? And then when you hit this recent one, did you know? Did VCs just come banging on the door saying we we want in kind of thing? Yeah. Um, so it all starts. So um, founded the company with my co-founder, Hugo. Uh, we both were at Caltech at the time. Um, and our first funding came from a couple grants from Caltech. Um, they, I think in total, we got $50,000 for R&D and then another $50,000. And then um, through like the Caltech Office of Technology Transfer and then another $50,000 grant from the Caltech Rocket Fund. Um, and they, uh, that allowed us to sort of start our research. Um, and then, uh, I got a, uh, what was then a postdoc, um, at Lawrence Berkeley national lab, which is a, an entrepreneurial postdoc, uh, called cyclotron road. And now it's called activate, um, which was funded by the department of energy's advanced manufacturing office and gave us a lab space up at Berkeley, Berkeley lab in the Bay area. And that um, was critical because we had, you know, not even close to a technology that was ready for investment, nor did we have um, enough money to get in the lab, but we needed lab space. So that program was really, really critical. And then through, um, through the mentoring and, and, and networking associated with that program, uh, Activate, we were able to meet a lot of venture capitalists um, and eventually our technology got mature enough where it was ready for venture capitalists. And um, we started, uh, you know, we kind of had a strategy there. It was like, okay, if we're going to 
work on one of the largest um uh one of the largest problems and most expensive problems to work on in the world and we need some folks with really really deep pockets um so we really targeted uh, a firm called breakthrough energy ventures which is um sort of bill gates and all of his richest friends i like to say who are quite rich who um are are, are concerned about climate um and they they uh, they funded us um, with some seed funding. Uh, and uh, that was, you know, the first money, I think everyone else says the first money was the hardest. I think we went through like nine months of diligence for a, a relatively small check. Um, and then after that, we made quite a few technical milestones, built a flow sheet, um, a, a model that flow sheet and, you know, chemical engineering software, um, built out a team, and we were able to demonstrate enough to um, convince ourselves that ultimately venture capitalists that our process had a reasonable shot of being, you know, economical at scale. And um, so we were able to then raise relatively quickly um, a, a, our Series A, which we raised about a year ago now or a little bit more, uh, which was substantially larger as like the, the lion's share of that 60, $60 million. And um, yeah, and, and that's actually, you know, providing us a, a war chest for quite some time. So we're not, you know, we're not actually currently fundraising. So it's um, certainly there's been some interest uh, from this announcement from venture capitalists and um, which we appreciate and, and uh, you know, we'll uh, we're in some conversations but it's uh, not a, you know, it's not a huge urgent goal for us to fundraise um, right now. Um, I think there's going to be, there's uh, several more milestones yet to come that we can do with our, with our, with our financing before we necessarily need to raise. Yeah. I think that's quite interesting. Usually by the time people get to these big milestones, they're, they're running on empty, right? <laughs> so they're, yeah. they're looking for that next check, but that's really a good position to be in. Um, okay. Very cool. This is, this is interesting. So, I want, what should I ask next? One thing I want to understand is, so this, I think this was already talked about, but just to clarify, this process is completely different. So this is not something that other uh, plants can be retrofitted to do, correct? This has to be a completely brand new build or totally like swap out the equipment. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's no, there's no set rules in this world, but I, I would be surprised if it made economic sense to retrofit a cement, a cement plant basically with anything. Um, and I've actually got an interesting story about that. Uh, so, um, you know, so I, first of all, I should say like, you know, there, there are, you know, a lot of the equipment we use it differently, but we still use the same equipment. So you probably could retrofit an existing cement plant. In order to minimize costs, cement plants sit on top of their quarries and we would do the same thing. And we quarry a different rock, right? We don't quarry, quarry a rock which has CO2 in it. So that would already be a challenge. <laughs> You'd have to ship in the rock, which would add, add a lot of cost. So it wouldn't make mm -hmm. a lot of sense to retrofit it, even if even though you could. Um, and then the uh, maybe the more important question is like, is retrofitting in general a good strategy? And you know, one of the things that we've learned from the cement industry is that... Um, Cement plants are very rarely retrofit. <laughs> um, the uh, once you turn the thing on, um, it prints money, right? So turning it off is a really bad proposition unless you can save an enormous amount of money. And the um, it is hard to imagine 
being able to save a lot, the, the amount of money that's required in order to turn a cement plant off uh, for, you know, for, for a lengthy, a lengthy amount of time. And that really comes down to thermodynamics, right? Because the amount of energy that is consumed to make cement in the conventional process is very, very close to the minimum of energy that's, that's thermodynamically allowed to use, right? You'd have to break a lot of physics in order to use less energy, less energy. So there just is not that much room for cost savings in a conventional spent plant. And therefore these facilities are pretty rarely retrofitted uh, because, you know, and, and when they are retrofitted, they, they try to retrofit them without turning the plant off, which means the retrofit takes a really, really long time. Mm. Um, so we're looking at, uh, there's a few, a few carbon capture and sequestration projects that are retrofits and the timelines for building those are like 10 years. Um, whereas a, a new build cement plant is two or three years. Wow. And the reason for that is they don't want to shut the plant off, right? They're, that's how they make money in their business. So, um, especially for something like CCS, which would, um, unless there's a, you know, a, a, a sizable, um, a sizable subsidy structure or something like that would add costs and make it more expensive. Um, so anyway, uh, retrofits, I think are, are a slow way to go compared to new builds. Um, so there's, you know, a lot of reasons why we wouldn't want to retrofit, although probably technically could. You know? mm. yeah. yeah, but I mean, it's a good point to note because there's a lot of companies trying to build carbon capture solutions and it's something worth considering, right? Like that's, that's uh, you know, getting to the point where like, okay, this is like trying to build a nuclear plant right now. Like it's not gonna, it's not gonna happen kind of thing or it could, but it's over a substantial amount of time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that sounds like a, an interesting challenge to tackle on another show, but, <laughs> um, one thing I did want to talk about, which is the, you said you use a different type of rock. So people are always <laughs> concerned about like, Hey, we're going to run out of lithium and all these different things. What is the abundance of this and where is it found? Let's, let's talk about, you know, kind of where in the world is found if, if it's not everywhere. And then in particular in the U S if there's uh, specific deposits of it. Yeah. Um, so this rock in general, uh, calcium silicate rocks in general, they make up about 50% of the rocks in the earth's crust. So, uh, now on the surface, like the easiest ones to mine, it's you know, much less than that, just like limestone, but it's, it's a, a similar amount of rock, like similar to limestone, which is like how, with how much there is on the surface. So there really is. And if you look up like the availability of availability of limestone, um, like the USGS's database, the availability uh, is stated as virtually virtually limitless. <laughs> so we are in the virtually limitless category um, of rock. So we, we are, you know, I think that uh, the sun will consume the earth long before we run out of silicate rocks to make cement out of. Um, but uh, so yeah, that that's that is that is not a concern. Um, uh, you know, our, our, our major concerns are more along the lines of, dang, we're going to need a lot of money to scale. And we're going to need, um, in, in, in order to get that money, we're probably going to need things like advanced market commitments, right? So like a contract um, to purchase the cement. And then uh, you get into the world of, well, okay, well, where is cement purchased? And it turns out that the federal government purchases like 50% 50, 50 or more of all the cement. And at this time, they don't do advanced market commitments. So, mm. There's like those sorts of problems um, that like a startup has, but a big company maybe doesn't because a big company has a lot of collateral that we can get loans from banks from, or they can also sell equity on the public market. 
Um, but, uh, you know, a small company, we don't have access to banks and because, because we're higher risk process. So mm-hmm. um, th- those are the things that concern us a lot more than the availability of rock. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. Um, what I want to ask one quick question on is the, a lot of people have worked with corporates, especially when they're going into like a heavy, heavy uh, industry space. Do you have any corporate VC partners or corporates that have kind of invested or maybe are the LPs in particular of uh, Breakthrough Energy Ventures, a lot of corporates that have other, you know, intros that can make you and partnerships they can work with you on? Yeah. So um, two come to mind directly. So the first is um, Amazon, uh, Amazon Climate Pledge. So they consume a lot of cement to build all of their buildings, their, you know, fulfillment centers, data centers, everything else. Um, so that they're, they've been a really, um, a really great uh, investor for us um, in that way. And then uh, Fifth Wall, uh, there are, you know, they are a real estate development focused fund. I think they're, you know, their LPs or like Fifth Wall's investors represent like a third of the world's built environment or something like that. Um, so they've been really awesome in, uh, um, in helping us figure out the commercial side um, also. So yeah, we've got, mm. we've been lucky with some really, really helpful investors. We're really mm. appreciative. That's good. That yeah, I think it's interesting to have the the right partners. What one broad question about the concrete space in general would be, you know, are the people, you know, you mentioned this a lot of different like capex to to change things and do things, but are they generally like fascinated to try to make cleaner concrete or, you know, how do you find the receptiveness of the industry? Yeah, so I don't know too many folks that want to buy more expensive concrete, but I do know a lot of folks that want to buy clean concrete. So basically how it goes is um, if, if you can make, uh, this, the, the same material for a, at a lower price point without the CO2 emissions, or even at the same price point without the CO2 emissions, that's a huge win. If it's a penny more expensive, it's not, not, not a win. <laughs> at least it's not a win for the, for the world cement industry. There, there certainly will be customers that are willing to spend more to be early adopters because they want the material now. They don't want it in 20 years or 10 years or five years or, you know, whatever the, you know, however far down the line they are or wherever the cement plant is. Um, but, uh, they do, yeah, the, um, it's, it's only a win in jet, like for the, for the masses we find is, um, if it's also lower cost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's go on to the final section here before we run out of time on kind of advice to, to founders. Um, I think, what I'd be curious to have you, because it seems like maybe obviously this is in retrospect, it seems clear cut, obviously it wasn't at the time, but when you look back, how would you advise other founders doing something that's totally new science on how to visualize the buckets and the, uh, how to kind of bucket the times and phases they have to go through from idea to, to principal things? Like how would you divide those out? And let's make it really clear for other really like deep tech founders who are looking to do something in, in the, in the space. Yeah. So I think that the like I think this is like almost trite at this point, but the the most important thing is being willing to pivot because the process that you developed in your head probably is awful. Right? Um, and you're you're um and you need to be willing to like let go of your favorite scientific, you know, discovery because you think it's not actually doesn't actually make any economic sense. Um and instead do something else. Um so that's I mean, that, that's sort of overarching. The second thing is um, remember, uh, like, like try to 
try to assess the likelihood of the outcome. So we're all trying to build businesses here. And uh, you know, you're not going to change the world or solve a climate problem or whatever if your business doesn't go anywhere. Um, so you want and like how you could try to calculate you, you can try to calculate the likelihood of the outcome with like an expected value calculation where it's like, okay, um, the my my business could be this big and this is the risk um associated with it. And you know, therefore the expected value of my business is you know 0.1 times a trillion or whatever it is, which is still quite a big business. But what I the 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 really the really clear piece of advice there is like when you're looking at the risk associated with your business, to ask yourself how much of that risk you can control. Right. One of the things that we said is it'd be really nice if clean electricity was everywhere and free or everywhere in one cent, right? <laughs> or 24 hours a day or, or, or all these sorts of things. But I can't control that. So if my process isn't clean or isn't cheaper, unless clean electricity gets to one cent in 24 hours a day, then that's a really, really big risk term in your expected value calculation. And if your process can avoid that risk term, then you're much more likely to have an impact. Um, and there's, you know, lots of, besides cost of electricity and that sort of thing, there's, there's, there's lots of potential risk terms. Like basically, do I need another technology to scale, um, before I can scale my technology? And if so, why am I not working on that other technology? <laughs> like that's like, a, um, you find that you, know, you have to work on another technology and you don't know how to, and you should probably change, you should probably pivot, right? You should probably change to a different technology because just the, when you have to compa compound these, uh, um, these risk factors, things are really bad. I would say the same, th same thing with like, if your business involves like, well, if we had a, you know, $150 per ton or $200 per ton or even $100 per ton carbon tax, then the business could be great. It was like, well, how long are we going to have that for? When are we going to have that? These things are, you know, quite risky and unpredictable. Um, so the chances of your business actually making an impact go down if it requires that. Yeah, that's something I was just arguing with somebody on LinkedIn today about. <laughs> um, so I think that's it's fascinating you bring it up uh, the same day. But what, one thing I'm curious about is advice to especially people who are more oriented towards science and technology. What is your advice on choosing either a co-founder or founding team to help you kind of go on that that those early days? Yeah, so for me, my co-founder, Hugo, he's amazing, right? I feel incredibly lucky to be able to work with him. Um, and so I think I, I could, I don't think I could have done it alone. Right. I just don't think I have the skills. Um, so like my advice would be like, try to find a co-founder who a has complementary skills to you. Right. So if you're like me and, um, you're, you know, have a really strong background in the scientists, like sciences and, but maybe you're a little scattered, like try to find someone like Hugo, who's incredibly organized as more of an engineer than a scientist. Right. Like these are, um, like, you know, trying to have, less redundant skills or fewer um fewer redundant skills is like a great thing for a co-founding team i think because it just means like it just makes the roles a lot clearer and then you don't um you, you know I, you, you don't really butt heads and then the second thing is like try to work with someone who you like like he was one of my best friends and um that's you know like that is that's huge for like our, like the strength of our relationship like carries us through like times when we disagree and there will be times when you disagree or, you know, anything's like that. And so it's just like, it's just amazing to like work with someone you love, you know, it's just like, it's, I, yeah, I, I would recommend that. Okay. Amazing. 
Um, and then what other advice, obviously you, you talked about how the funding process went, but what would your biggest piece of advice to the founders be during the fundraising process, especially at the early stage? Maybe you have particular advice throughout um, how, how to go about that, whether that's through grants or VC. Yeah. So um, I would be open to all kinds of funding. It's going to take a lot of funding to get anywhere. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that the, the time to go uh, uh, for, for venture capital money is when you like look at this and be like, okay, I think that I have something like a business here, right? If you just have like, oh, I have a really interesting lab result, like probably too early for, for venture capital, but it's like, okay, I think I know a way I can make money off of this or solve the problem that I want to solve. Like that would be the time to go for VC. And my advice would be like, be really confident, like do a lot of work uh, ahead of time to understand the economics of your process, right? Get Dig really deep into techno-economics and, and try to figure out, you know, what the economics of your process would look at scale and use really and try to use really, really reasonable assumptions. Um, because the more you can do that, the more confidence venture capitalists will have that they will make money, right? And they need to make money or else they won't give you money because they could give someone else money where they will make money, right? <laughs> so that's, um, yeah, doing a, doing a lot more work than you think you need to on your techno-economics is, I think, is really mm -hmm. helped us. And then one, I guess this would be more like a self-reflection type of question is what would you say, if, if you think you can put your finger on it, would be the most uh, important factor that has helped you succeed in, in kind of building this company? You know, I would actually uh, point to like an un unrelenting um, attitude of, uh, if it doesn't work in today's economic assumptions, then the process is not good enough, right? Because that has that has allowed us to keep our expected values high, right? Because we're not multiplying, you know, risks that we can't control together, um, and that is so. And, and and it also has caused us to like pivot many, 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 many times. Or I was like, we realized, oh, like this process is great, except electricity has to be twenty four hours a day and clean and point one cents per kilowatt hour, like, oh, this is great, but we need a $50 per ton carbon tax, or, oh, this is great, but we just need to ship rock from Hawaii all over the world. You know, like, there's all of these things. They're like, ah, it's not actually great. <laughs> so, um, so, and then we'd be like, okay, well, we need to keep thinking. And I think that there, there are routes to solve a lot of these problems, but um, a lot of folks will uh, either fool, maybe fool themselves a little bit with, with, um, assumptions, which is really easy to do because, you know, you love, you love what you're doing. You want to do it, or they will, um, you know, assume that, you know, assume things that are really risky. So, mm -hmm. yeah, very good. Well, this has been awesome. Uh, the last question I have is how did you come up with the name Brimstone? And was that the original name or did it get changed along the way? Yeah. Brimstone is the one thing in the company that has not pivoted. I guess we used to be called Brimstone Energy and we dropped the energy. So, um, it's been the same way. So how that started is we started actually as a, um, co-producing hydrogen, clean hydrogen and sulfuric acid for the fertilizer industry. Okay. Um, and we did that from sulfur and brimstone is an archaic name for sulfur, uh, which is like, as a chemist, I was like, oh, that's kind of fun. Um, and then since then we've been asked many, many times uh, if, if we are very religious and uh, <laughs> not really actually, I never thought of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but I just uh, think it's, it's a great name, but I'm just curious, do a lot of other chemists give you like, give you flack or like, Hey, that doesn't make any sense now based on what you're doing. <laughs> no, <laughs> they don't. Uh, I appreciate because we don't use sulfur anymore. But. 
<laughs> Very nice. Well, it's a cool name and a great, and a great marketing as well. So it's been a pleasure to have you on, uh, you know, where, what's your call to action for people? Where can they reach you? Yeah. So reach out on our website. Uh, we've got a, a, a form there or on LinkedIn and like the biggest thing that we're looking for is we need a, you know, really strong, motivated, hands-on chemical engineers, right? We are, we are building a big facility and <laughs> we, um, uh, we need a lot of folks. So, so if you're a chemical engineer, please, please, please reach out. Um, cause we'd love, we would love to talk about working together. Um, and then if you're a policymaker, of course, advanced market commitments. <laughs> <laughs> Let's change it. Let's make it happen, man. This has been great. I'm really excited to, to see where you guys go, uh, hopefully to the moon. So, uh, this is gonna be great. Can't wait to see. Well, thanks Silas. I really appreciate that. <laughs>